So, Father, we do ask that you join us today as we as we look into the story of Daniel. We ask, Father, that you'd bless us in our study and help us, Lord, to emulate the faith and the courage of Daniel and his three friends. Thank you for this time together, Lord. We do ask a special blessing on Debbie as that you would give the doctors great wisdom to stop this terrible, the worst of all uh, skin cancers, Lord. And we pray, Father, for Greg as well, that the that the process of the stints and the fear of the heart attack would cause him to draw closer to your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the good news about my brother-in-law, Bob, that he's home, that he's back in Maryland, and I know he's happy about that, and I just pray you'd help him through this this final phase of his life as he as he ends his life with Alzheimer's. And Lord, there's, it's a tough way to go, and we just ask, Father, that you'd bless him with his efforts. And on those days that he's clear, Father, on those days that his mind is working well, I pray that he'll turn to your son, Jesus Christ, and truly, truly come to believe in his death on Bob's behalf. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 1. So Daniel chapter 1, if you will, turn to Daniel chapter 1. By request, I'm going to start the book of Daniel. I wasn't sure where I was going to go, but uh, I was told I'm going to the book of Daniel. So I'm going to Daniel, huh? What do you think? It was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. This is Iraq, by the way. This is Iraq where this king is from. And he brought the vessels and the treasures of the house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom. Sorry. And cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans, in case I lose my place later or get lost. What they did is when they conquered this country, they took the children of all the leaders of the country. And that guaranteed their uh, loyalty to the king because they had their children. So they took the best of the best. Daniel, we don't know what his relationship to his father was or the role of his father, but we do know that these were the children of the leaders of the country. Uh, And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them for three years. Now, you know, that goes by pretty quickly when you read it, but three years sitting in a prison just eating the king's food is a long time. I don't know. I spent one 24-hour period in the hospital, and it's like the longest day, you know, and I can't imagine three years in a dungeon. Uh, that, that at the end of it, they might stand before the king. Now, among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the princes of the eunuchs gave names for them. They gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah the name of Shadrach, and to Mishael the name of Meshach, and to Azariah the name of Abednego. But, you know, the, the old Negro spirituals got us to where we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego better than we know the guy's real names. And I've always thought if they ever heard me preach this and I keep referring to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it would offend them because they're thinking, well, that's not my right name. Why don't you use my real name? You know, it's Ananiah. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. 
That's a kind of a gutsy move. This is a teenager. Daniel, they think, is in his middle teens. You know, he's 14, 15, or 16. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed you meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then he shall make me endanger my head to the king. And then Daniel said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse, that's stewed vegetables to eat, and water to drink, and let our countenance be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest deal with thy servants. Let's do a test. Let's see how it works. Let's see if what God said really works. And the guy went along with that. So he consented to them in this manner and proved them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which the king, which did eat the king's portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them stewed vegetables or steamed vegetables. Uh, pulse just sounds so revolting that, uh, you know, I, pulse, I think, ugh. And pulse sounds like something Linda made for uh dinner when she pitched everything in the kitchen sink in and made a, made a stew. Uh, as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding of all visions and dreams, which is a, a significant part of his ministry. Now, at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king commanded with them, I'm sorry, communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all manners of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the musicians and astrologers that were in all of his realm. (laughs) You know, that had to be a problem. And Daniel continued even to the first year of King Cyrus. He actually made it through three empires as a leader of this country. It's a pretty remarkable story. Daniel, obviously, was a pretty remarkable young man. Uh, so what I'd like to do is give you a little history and a very little bit of commentary, if I could. Uh, you know the story of Israel, I hope, and you're fairly familiar with it, but their greatest king was David. David reigned from uh, 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C., his reign was 40 years. That's a long time for a king to reign. Often, David is considered to be the best of the best of Israel's kings, and he was. He was a man who loved God. The Bible said he's a man after God's own heart. And uh, he did everything he could to do what was right for his country and for his God. He, he was went out of his way to try to please God, and he was obviously the king we all wish we had right now. You know, uh, but he's also uh, a human. David, David was a very flawed man and he committed adultery with another man's wife. And when the man was in danger of finding out about it, who was one of David's warriors, David had him killed. So David is clearly guilty of adultery and murder and, and the sins of David caused problems in his family. And the problems in his family eventually led to a, uh, a uh, civil war which split the nation into two parts after his son Solomon, who was the surviving son of the affair that he had with Bathsheba. You know, so King Solomon uh, followed after David and was probably king of, of Israel during his high point. 
uh, of its history, uh, about about 1,900 B.C. He reigned for 39 years, one year less than his dad. His wisdom was world-renowned, but honestly, when you read about him now, you think his stupidity should be world-renowned. He was one of the wisest men that ever lived, and if you ever read... Uh, if you ever read the Proverbs, you're actually reading the wisdom of Solomon, and it's 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 amazing. Uh, I've only done a couple studies through the years of it, but the studies that I've done have been very interesting. And I, I always try to read a song, and I try to be regular at reading a, a proverb uh, because there's always something in there for you. But just as his father uh, Solomon was deeply, deeply flawed, he had enormous cravings for power for money, and apparently for sex. I, I guess 1,100 wise has something to do with sex. It has something to do with something besides mental illness. I don't know, but he had, he had I don't know, 600 wives, 800 wives and concubines, almost 1,000 when you counted them all up. You know, uh, it, it, you, don't, you don't really know. By the end of it all, he, re, he kind of repented of it, and he tells us, you know, to be happy with your first wife. And but by the time he was an old man and he was writing, you know, Ecclesiastes, he, he realized that he really, really messed up. Uh, Katie Kirk one time interviewed Bill Clinton. I saw that interview. And at one point she asked Bill Clinton, Bill is a lot like David and Solomon. Uh, the reason I bring him up, uh, except uh, David and Solomon weren't criminals. Uh, Bill's a criminal. Uh, when asked if he thought that personal family issues might impede his wife's run for the presidency, uh, he said these words, this I'm quoting Billy, I can't understand why people are even interested in that sort of thing. You know, why does my personal behavior matter for my qualifications as a king or as a president? And I'm telling you, that sentence sums up everything that's wrong with America right now. If Israel is going to teach us anything at all, if the history of Israel is going to teach us that the morality of a nation matters and the survival of a nation depends on the morality of the people and their leader, leadership really matters, uh, especially when it comes to kings and presidents. It matters that they're moral people doesn't matter so much what they say or how good they are at making speeches. Look at what they do, and that will tell you. Right after these two flawed characters of the nation of Israel, David and Solomon, there was a civil war that split the northern and southern tribes, and often it's referred to Judah and Israel, uh, the northern tribe and the southern tribe. After Solomon, there was a succession of kings, many of which were bad. I know John's been taking you through the good kings. There were many, many bad kings. Uh, and the nation went from bad to worse. So we're actually coming down now. We're getting closer and closer to our time from 1000 B.C. to somewhere around 600 B.C., 600 years before Christ, if you will, uh, although the, the liberals want to say before the common era. era. Uh, by the time you get to 600, the temple was in absolute disarray. Corruption was everywhere. But more importantly, Israel had fallen into rampant idolatry and immorality. They were actually worshiping pagan idols and sacrificing their children to the, the, the idol of Baal. And they did this for the specific reason that they thought that if I give my kid 
as an offering. They burn these children alive in these idols. If I give my child as an offering, I'll be blessed financially or I'll be blessed in my farming or I'll be blessed. And you know, that's really exactly what abortion is all about. If I kill this baby, my life will be better. I mean, that's really the exact same thing. God didn't care for it then, 600 B.C., and believe me, He doesn't care for it now. More importantly, Israel had fallen into such idolatry and immorality that God was sick of them. He was really done with it. And the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, were warning the nation that they needed to repent or or God was going to kick them out of the land. Uh, During the reign of one good king, however, uh, one of the the, the few of the good kings... uh, Josiah, he reigned from 640 to 609 B.C. 609 is when Nebuchadnezzar comes in. So Josiah was the king just before the Babylonian captivity. The temple was rebuilt, the idols were torn down, and a great revival broke out in the land. Now, obviously it wasn't great enough. God was done done with his patience and he was ready to take the nation down, but Still, somebody somewhere was running a little youth group and sitting down with these leaders' sons and teaching them the law, the Torah, and teaching them the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. And during that revival is when they believed Daniel became the strong believer that he is. And you know, you think, you know, during the reign of one good king, it changed the course of the nation. And much of what, what went right for Israel went right because somebody did a Bible study with some teenagers before the nation fell. You know, One good leader, one good revival, one good convert. I remember the story of how uh, a Sunday school teacher whose name I've long since forgotten led a young man to the Lord and said to that young man, the world is yet to see a man that was fully dedicated to God. And Dwight L. Moody, the young man then, said, I'm going to be that man. I'm going to be fully committed to God. And thousands and thousands of people came to Christ because of the of this one man who led this young man to the Lord. And that's sort of Daniel's story. There was a revival. Daniel got right with God. He got his heart right with God, and no matter what happened in his nation, Daniel determined to the best of his ability he was going to stand for what is true, even if it cost him his life. So in the beginning of our story here, and I know this is a lot of history, uh, in the beginning of our story, Egypt was the world empire. Assyria was a close second, and Assyria, which we call Syria today, but it was Assyria then, Assyria had already been invading the northern tribes and taking away captives, and many of those captives, uh, they, they dispersed, they would take slaves for themselves, the ones they didn't want, they'd spread all over what we call Europe now, I don't know what they called it then, but they spread it all over. And that's where you hear the story of the the lost ten tribes, that the ten tribes of the northern tribes were lost because Assyria came in and spread them all over Europe. And their their philosophy was, well, if I go into a country and I conquer it, and I take 80% of their people and I spread them all over the world, and then I bring people from all over the world in their country, I will break their culture. Babylon had an entirely different philosophy, but the Assyrians, when they were done, believe me, your culture was destroyed. 
uh, they were finished. And that's why when you read in the Bible, you read about the hatred that the Jews had for the Samaritans. That's the southern tribe for the northern tribe. Uh, it's because of this breakdown in the culture of the northern tribes that happened as a result of their Assyrian captivity. Uh, you don't hear much about that because none of those guys were involved in writing any scripture. Their, their culture was utterly destroyed. Uh, so Egypt was a world power. Assyria was a close second. But Babylon was a rising power. And after Babylon, of course, will come the Persian Empire. And some people call it Medo-Persian Empire because the Medes and the Persians joined up together to conquer the world. So we're, we're at the point where Babylon is a rising power. Uh, and let me see. I've, I've gone way ahead of my notes. Oh, yeah. Uh, many people feel that what we call the European nations were... were uh, fueled by, were governed by, were uh, improved by the dispersion of these Jews. And uh, some, some will even tell you that the, the, the dispersion of the ten tribes of Israel led to the, the founding of the United States of America. I don't know about that, but I've read people say that. So now we're in 606 B.C. Josiah is at the end of his reign. Nebuchadnezzar succeeded in defeating the Egyptians, uh, Pharaoh Necho in Egypt. He had a great victory in Egypt, and on his way home, it's a long walk. Uh, It's a thousand miles from Jerusalem to uh, Babylon. If you take Highway 1, Route 1, there was no Highway 1 back in that day, and I don't know what route they took, but if you were to leave Jerusalem today, you'd drive north for about 60 miles, and then you'd turn and you'd go northeast and you'd drive for 800, 900 miles before you got to Babylon. You know. Anyway, Neb was so excited about his victory over Egypt, when he got to Jerusalem, he besieged it just for fun. I guess he wanted to keep his soldiers in shape. I don't know, maybe he thought maybe there's something to be gained here, but he decided to besiege Jerusalem, and in the process conquered Jerusalem for no real reason. While he was there besieging the city, he got word that his father died, And now he was not the son of the king, he was the king. And so he had to hurry home, so he took these captives with him, a bunch Daniel was one of them, and he he took some, we read that in the beginning, he took some of the utensils. He's going to go back, uh, some of the gold and the silver of the temple, he's going to go back in in another few years, and he's going to really ransack Israel again. and, And what's going to happen is the king then is going to be talked into thinking he can beat he can beat Babylon, and Babylon's going to utterly destroy Israel. So in the first siege of 606, the, the, the prophets called that the servitude of the nations, and that's when those slaves were taken. And this is a bit of a rabbit, but the clock's cooperating with me. It almost looks like a battery died. But uh, in the servitude of the nation, those slaves that were taken out, you know, Daniel was chained together with others, and in, in those days it wouldn't have been uncommon to strip them naked, uh, and you would walk barefooted. Uh, they might allow you to have a loincloth. Brutal, brutal time for Daniel and his friends. Fortunately, these people were young. But as, as, they're, as they're walking to Babylon, they think they've got the worst of it. You know, they really do. And, I don't know, I would think I had the worst of it too. You know, How far do we have to go? Are we there yet? Um, but the truth is, they're the ones that survive. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever picked up on that. I know that there are those that make fun of those of us who believe in the pre-trip rapture theory uh, because there's so little evidence of it in the Bible. Uh, and yet it's there. Enoch loved God before the flood and God took him. Noah loved God and God preserved him through the flood. So you got two groups of people. you got two types of people. you got those that God takes out ahead of time. And you have those that God preserves through it. And that's exactly what I think is going to happen in our tribulation period. You have Lot, who was in Sodom. And God, the angel told Lot that we can't do anything to Sodom until we get you out of here. Uh, And it sets a precedent. I don't know if you see it or not. You know, uh, God will take his people out before judgment falls. And in this situation... God took these young people out before judgment fell. Well, Daniel comes to Babylon in the first siege, the servitude of the nations, and he never gets back home. From that time forward, Israel will be governed. I think the word enslaved is better. I remember the Jews said to Jesus, we've never been slaves of anyone. And I think to them that they were, on, they were in slavery to Rome at the time that that Jew said that to Jesus. But before that, they were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Assyria. They were slaves in Babylon. They were slaves in the Medo-Persian Empire. They were slaves under the Grecian Empire. And they were currently slaves under the Roman Empire. And that pictures so much what fallen humanity thinks. Is I don't have a problem with sin. I'm not a slave to sin. I've got it completely in control. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Jesus did not rebuke the guy, but I, I think I would have had something to say to him. I said, are you kidding? Why are all these Roman soldiers walking around if you've never been a slave to anyone? Try not paying your taxes for 10 minutes and see who you're a slave to. In AD 70, you know the history. This We're now uh, 600 years after Daniel, 700 years after Daniel. Rome will come in and completely destroy Israel, and Israel will be scattered all throughout the world. God will regather Israel from Babylon the first time, and then they'll be scattered again under the Roman Empire. AD 70. And then in 1948, well actually probably about 1935, a guy named Hitler will decide to wipe all the Jews off the face of the earth. His goal was to destroy Israel, and as usual, he ended up establishing the nation country of re-establishing the nation country of Israel, and God called his people back a second time in 1948. And these are those nations that Daniel is going to prophesy when we get to chapter 2 and when we get to chapter 7. Well, it turns out that one of the kings was convinced, one of the kings of Israel was convinced that they could, they could survive against Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar had to go back down and whoop them two more times. And in the end, by the time Nebuchadnezzar left after the third siege of Babylon, the third siege of Jerusalem by Babylon would be a better way to say it. There was nothing left. The, the walls were torn down, the temple was destroyed, their buildings were burned to the ground, there was nothing left. So for the next 70 years, the Jews, the ones that survived in Babylon, had no country to go home to. And, and, and much of the, the succeeding history is of their return when God called them out and rebuilding their nation. Now the question is, do we dare believe that our sins do not matter to God? Do we think God will just wink at the sins of our nation Century after century after century. 
If God would crush his own people, Israel, why would he continue to protect us? That is the question. This all ends in the third siege, 19 years after the first siege. Jerusalem is totally destroyed, torn down stone by stone, laid a complete and absolute waste. And this, by the prophets, is called the desolations of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 25. Now, remember you had the the, uh, servitude of the nation, and prophetically from Jeremiah, and you have the desolations of the nation in Jeremiah chapter 25. So you got the servitude and you have the desolations, and they're 16 or 17 years apart. Now, the interesting thing about that is both of those, the servitude and the desolations, last for exactly 70 years. Exactly 70 years to the day. To the very day. And and the point I'm trying to make is God is a literal God and these prophecies are literal. So where does this 70-year punishment come from? Where does the idea of a 70-year punishment come from? I'd like to show you that before we go on. You have to go all the way back to Moses and Leviticus. Leviticus 25. You can make a note. I'll read it to you. Moses was told to tell the people, the Lord spoke unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Leviticus 25 and verse 1, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into that land which I will give you, then shall shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Sabbath rest for the land. Ooh, what's that? Six years shall thy sow thy field, and six years shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. Can you imagine that? You're a farmer. Work six years, take the seventh year off. The only people I know that have ever done that is us teachers. We, you know, we work a few years and then we have a Sabbath year. That was, but, but we keep getting paid. See, these farmers were saying, don't worry, I'll take care of you. God says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. I don't know about that. You know, that which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest thou shalt not reap. Neither gather grapes of the vine. Let the just the, the, what do they call it, volunteer. Let the volunteer fruit just perish right out there on the vine. Don't, don't harvest it. For it is a year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, for thee and for thy servant, and for thy maid and for thy hired servant, for the stranger and for the, so, the stranger that sojourneth with thee. And for all thy cattle and for the beast. Everybody gets to rest. That's the point. That's a really cool idea. I don't know how you'd ever make it work, but God had it figured out. Did you ever think you were too busy to really serve God? Well, you work, you work, you work. You know, a farmer, a farmer works from sun up to sundown, and sometimes with light bulbs, they keep on working. God's answer to this is every seventh year, your time belongs to me. You're taking a year off. Work six years, take the seventh off, that sabbatical year you can serve me. It's a great idea. God even guarantees the abundance of the first six years to outweigh the point to cover your losses in the seventh. He promises that. And the land gets to rest. You get to draw near to God. Now, the next chapter in Leviticus is 26. And in Leviticus 26... It kind of points up to the fact that the idea of a sabbatical rest is not a suggestion by God. God rarely makes suggestions. Uh, it's, it's a commandment. 
So the first 13 verses of Leviticus chapter 26, the next chapter, are the blessings that you'll enjoy if you obey the promise of the Sabbath rest or the law of the Sabbath rest. And the next 26 verses, the first 13 was blessings. The next 26 are the curses God's going to bring on you if you don't know them. And one of those curses, I'm going to kick you out of the land. So back to the question, where's the 70 years come from? Here you are, a Jewish farmer. God is blessing you to a point you no longer doubt of his abilities to bless you. Your crops are growing like crazy. Your calves are popping out all over the place. Your sheep are growing wool so fast you have to shave them twice a year instead of once. You're making money like crazy. And now the seventh year comes and are you going to stop and take the year off? That's the question. God has been blessing you like crazy. Are you going to stop? No way, man. You're making too much money. You have car payments and house payments and college payments. You got payments on the children's dentures. You got your widescreen TV to pay for and that fast boat you just bought. You can't stop and not work for a whole year. You can't stop working. Surely God doesn't mean for us to stop and not work for a year. It can't be literal, can it? Could it possibly be literal interpretation? It must be symbolic. God must mean I should be more thoughtful of him while I'm working during that seventh year. It has to be some type of another way to interpret this. God means I'll have to learn to trust him even while I'm working, doesn't he? So what it turns out is Israel went 490 years and never once took a Sabbath rest for the land. 490 years without ever taking a year off. So you get to Second Chronicles. You just write it down as a note, verse 30, uh, chapter 36 and verse 15. And it says that God sent them prophets. The Lord God of their father sent to them by his messengers rising up in time and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He sent them people to warn them. Verse 16 says, but they mocked the messengers of God and they despised his words. They made fun of them for their literal interpretation and saying that God demands a rest for the land. And misused the prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. I want you to notice something here. God was all right until they started making fun of his people. Right? And mocking the message that God sent to them. You know where we are in America today. We are mocking, our nation is mocking the message that God sent to us. Therefore, he brought upon them the king of the Chaldeans, and that's Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion of a young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all. In other words, they killed everybody. Men, women, and children, they just slaughtered them all. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. This is the first and second destruction of Jerusalem. And they burnt the house of God and broke down the wall. This is the third one. And broke down the walls of Jerusalem and burnt the palaces with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And Bob wants to add, and the only ones left alive were those captives taken out. You see? They thought they were cursed and they were the ones that were blessed. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away into Babylon where they were servants, spell that slaves, to him and his sons, until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, which will be Cyrus, which we'll get to at the end of this book. Now, why did this happen? The writer of Second Chronicles tells us in verse 21, I just read verse 20. Listen to verse 21. 
to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept her Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. Threescore is two, four, sixty years plus ten is seventy years. They missed seventy Sabbath rest and God took it out of their hide. For seventy years, the nation laid fallow. And they're not going to learn their lesson because in another 400 years, Rome's going to kick them out for 2,000 years. 1,875 to be precise. So if you say, see, you're a farmer or a mechanic or a workman, would you take the Sabbath year off if God told you to? Let me tell you something. Daniel would. (laughs) And he would certainly wish you would. Now, this is, again, this is a rabbit Really? Is that time correct? I'm a little worried about the time. What time is it? Someone got a clock in front of them? Huh? Okay, so that that is right. Okay, I am just can't tell the big hand from the small hand there. Uh, I'm on my last page of notes here. One of the interesting things to me is Israel's back in the land. 1948, they returned. You know, they were, they were actually recognized. They'd been sneaking back in for another 50 years before that. Um, and, and, and Israelis now brag about that they're back to biblical farming. Well, my God, they ought to be, really. I mean, they should have learned their lesson by now, right? But are they keeping the Sabbath of the land? So this is what they're doing. This is now in Israel. We're talking modern-day Israel. And they're they're really not a Jewish nation. I mean, they're not Jewish in in the biblical sense. They're just the ancestors of those Jews. Most of them are not really serious about their faith. I asked a Jew one time at, at school, and you know, we were talking about her Jewishness, and I said, so I, I'm just curious, you know, because I, I, I would like to talk about Jesus. And I said, so what, what are you doing about your sin? And she said, our sin? I said, yeah, what, what are you doing about sin? You don't have a temple. You can't make sacrifices. What are you doing to atone for your sins? What are you doing for your atonement? <laughs> She didn't bat an eyelash. She said, oh, well, we just don't believe in sin anymore. Oh, how do you have a conversation after that? Okay. You don't believe in sin? Okay. Well, these, these Jews today say they're keeping the Sabbath laws, and they do it this way. Because the Jewish law makes no rule over Gentile land, the Gentiles don't have to have a Sabbath rest. Every seven years, the Jews sell their land to an Arab or a Christian that they trust with the understanding that at the end of the seventh year, they'll sell the land back to them. So these Arabs and Christians actually farm their land while they, uh, they're they the overseer. And, but they don't own the land, so they don't have to take the Sabbath rest. And I just kind of wonder, that isn't exactly a rest for the land, is it? It's kind of a workaround. So we're back at Daniel now. We're at 6, 609 BC, 600 years before the Lord Jesus came, and Daniel and his, his friends were walking to Babylon in chains, and they had 1,132 miles of desert to walk through. You can imagine what that must be like. Daniel probably didn't expect to live, but he made up his mind that no matter how bad the leadership of my country is, or no matter what happens, or no matter whether we fall, or no matter whether I die, I'm going to be faithful to God. And with every step, he determined in his heart that he was going to be faithful to God. He determined that his last days, he'd seen his family brutally murdered. 
His temple and their homes and businesses all plundered. He didn't see them destroyed. He was already up by then. Even his new king was a pawn in the hand of the Gentiles. And I, I don't know how much of this Daniel understood. But Daniel determined that he would live his last days serving the God of his fathers. And as it turned out, his last days were a long, long time later. And he did a great service for his people and for his God and for the king Nebuchadnezzar that he served and loved. He actually led the king to the Lord. And for, in the end, Cyrus the Great, who actually sent the Jews back, you know. Daniel understood that this captivity was a punishment on his people, and he accepted it. He accepted this punishment. He accepted that this was God's will for his people, and he was going to do the best he could do in that situation, and he was going to stay firm, even if it cost him his life. So Daniel surrenders to the authority of his captors, but still in every way, he finds ways that he can obey God to stand for God. Now, food was one of those ways. The stuff that the king was eating wasn't exactly kosher. So Daniel worked out a plan with his captors that he could eat food that was acceptable. Now, I don't think God blessed Daniel because of the food. I think the choice to eat approved Jewish food is a symbol that God chose Daniel. I don't think God gifted Daniel because Daniel was faithful. I think Daniel was faithful because God gifted him. I think the grace of God came first and the faithfulness of Daniel came second. Nonetheless, he was a remarkable young man. Uh, Now God has a plan for Daniel and we know he'll rise to great power and prestige in Babylon. He'll be famous and he'll be powerful through three world empires. It's really remarkable when you think about it. But the sad truth is, Daniel never gets to go back home. And he accepted that. He died in Babylon. Because of his faith and his faithfulness of God, God will reveal to him these prophecies that virtually outline all of human history. Now, Daniel's prophecies are so accurate and so literate, literate in that everything he said came true literally. You know, I mean, what he prophesied is exactly what happened. It's so true that liberals today say Daniel was written after Christ lived. Daniel had to have lived after Jesus because he would have never known all these things could happen. I give you an idea how small their God is. But God will use Daniel to win the hearts of a brutal dictator and to turn many lives in the right direction. More than that, Daniel will actually set the standard for faith. I mean, if you want to learn about faith and faithfulness, Daniel sets the standard. Daniel's life and his teachings will shape what it means for us to be faithful. If you want to know what it means to be faithful, look at this young man. Look at his stand. Does it matter how we live? Daniel will tell us yes. Can anyone be really faithful in such extreme hardship? Daniel will say, certainly, you can stand for God in the worst conditions imaginable. Can God really be working when everything is going wrong? With bad leadership, falling nations, conquering nations coming in, the destruction of their economy and their temple. Daniel will say, yes, God can be in that. Can God use us even when we're just teenagers? Daniel's life will tell you, yes, God can use a faithful teenager. Can a poor immigrant slave make a difference in the world? The answer is yes. Yes, whether you're a slave or an immigrant or a Babylonian prince, 
you can make a difference in the world if you're faithful. Like that guy said to, uh, yeah, I just forgot his name. Uh, that man, <laughs> Dwight L. Moody, the world has yet to see a man that is wholly dedicated to God. I, I think he kind of missed, I think he kind of missed Daniel when he said that. Daniel was an example of what it's like to be completely committed to God. We'll never know. You and I will never know what God will do with us. We'll never know what God could do with us individually until we decide ourselves that we're going to serve Him completely. We'll never know what God's plan for our life was until we surrender to it. No matter what happens in our life, even now, in the days that we're living in right now, we're all feeling the threat. But even now, in this time of chaos confusion, like Daniel, we must set our will to be faithful to God. We must be ready to stand for what's true and what's right, regardless of the consequence, regardless of that furnace that he wants to throw us in. I know Daniel wasn't there for that event. And regardless of the lion's den that he wants to feed us to, we have to be willing to stand. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together and this young man's life who literally changed the outcome of the world. Thank you, Lord. Bless us, we pray. Our hope is that no one listening to this message has missed the point that we need to have individual faith and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.